Hello, and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Emily Gregg. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Professor and Vice Chair of Research in Dermatology and Professor in Bio medical engineering at Stony Brook University. Dr. Richard Clark, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. We see from your CV that you have an MD and had extensive postdoctoral training consisting of internships, residencies, and research fellowship. Could you tell our listeners how you navigated this training as an MD with clinical focus and where and when you decided to bring in more of a research focus uh, in your career? Well, to explain that, I have to back up to my undergraduate training at uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where I actually started out as an engineer. And then because of an interest in medicine, I switched to uh, biology. Uh, But I actually graduated with a minor in chemistry, so I ended up my undergraduate years training in engineering, biology, and chemistry. Then I went to medical school, but the groundwork was laid for research already. Wow. And, and so it was, uh, even in medical school, not uh, difficult to decide to do a year in uh, research with a uh, immunologist at the uh, University of Rochester. So I did that. And then all through my training, I tended to uh, interpose research with every step of my clinical training. So I would do clinical, then I would do research, then I would do clinical, then I would do research. And so I always married the two. And then, of course, when I got my first academic job at the National Jewish Hospital in Denver, Colorado, I was hired as a clinical research physician. Hmm. Great. So. Wow. That, I like that. that that's, that's interesting. Um, well, your seminar today discussed engineering a peptide for topical burn treatments. Um, so b- before we get into those specifics, could you provide um, a general overview for our audience on how we currently understand the process of wound healing? What is wound healing? Uh, that's much more difficult than telling you the process of burn injury progression. That's easy because everybody listening to this has probably been burned before. And if you've been burned, you know that it hurts for about three days, whether you have a Band-Aid on it or not. And that's burn injury progression. That pain, which is unlike any other wound, is because the tissue continues to die. Mm. And so we got very interested in that about a decade ago, and so we asked if there was anything we could do to fix it. I like that. Um, so sort of piggybacking off of that, how did you initially become interested in chronic wound and burn healing? So because, so I've been interested, to back up, I've been interested in chronic wounds for a very long time, but a very complex, uh, much more detailed uh, discussion than we have time for today. So I will just skip ahead and say, because I've been burned <laughs> uh, in more ways than one. 
I was interested in how to uh, stop the ramifications of that burn and in real thermal burns, uh, the pain for three days. And the, the opportunity came up uh, to me as someone who was actually already interested in wound healing for three decades. The, uh, the opportunity came up 10 years ago uh, to uh, join the Armed Forces Institute of Regenerative Medicine uh, specifically to focus on how we could stop burn injury progression. There is currently no therapy to stop burn injury progression. That means it's an unmet need. That means if you actually find something that you think might work, the FDA uh, will give you an orphan drug designation, which is a big deal because that really short circuits a lot of the barriers in dealing with the FDA. Why? Well, the simple way to answer that is because you're not sitting across the table from the FDA. You're sitting next to the FDA at mm -hmm. the table. Their mm -hmm. job becomes to actually help you make your orphan drug work. So it's really an amazing thing uh, for that opportunity. Uh, there's actually a lot of small companies that take that route uh, to drug development because of the, the help that they can get from the FDA going through the regulatory process. It isn't because the FDA weakens the regulatory process. They just simply help you getting through it all. Mm -hmm. So uh, I found that out, of course, <laughs> after I discovered something that might actually help burn injury progression. Uh, actually, I had a friend who was CEO of a company who was doing orphan drugs for all kinds of stuff, and so I really did know about it. So I applied it to my finding because, as I said, uh, it was an unmet need, and fortunately, not many people need the kind of therapy I've come up with. It's about mm -hmm. 50,000 people a year are burned severely enough to be hospitalized, so that is not a big number. So being an orphan drug is necessitated, it requires uh, both filling an unmet need and filling an unmet need in a small population yeah. of mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And so once we found the activity that looked like it was working or might work, uh, we actually put in years ago now for an orphan drug designation. So that really helped us think that this, you know, if it worked, could actually be translated to people. Uh, so that's uh, how two serendipitous things happen. One is the DOD invited me to be part of an Armed Forces Institute of Regenerative Medicine, uh, specifically to see if I could fulfill this unmet need, and number two, understanding how the FDA could help actually make this a reality if I was so lucky to discover such a mechanism. And you right. just mentioned a firm. Um, so can you talk to us more about some of the exciting projects that are being funded um, through that institute? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, everybody needs to know that we're advanced from a firm one, which was a five-year 
uh, consortium. Uh, and a consortium means many, many different projects at many different institutions across the company, so across the country, sort of like a virtual uh, institution, because it was a virtual, it's not sort of like, it was a virtual mm -hmm. institution. Um, and there were two consortia uh, in a firm one, one based at Rutgers Cleveland Clinic and another one based here at Wake Forest. Uh, and then after that, five years uh, took us through a firm one. There was a firm two, which is another five years. And the Army decided they wanted just one consortium. And so that is here at Wake Forest. But it didn't limit the scope of the number of projects. As a matter of fact, I think the number of projects were about equal uh, in a firm two as a firm one. So like a firm one, the projects are in multiple labs all across the country in different institutions. Uh, and the scope of work goes from burn injury to battle injury. And as soon as you're talking about battle injury in general, you're talking about injuring uh, tissue and organs that are below the skin so that you get involved with muscles and nerves and tendons and bone. Uh, you get involved with bladder. You get involved with uh, the vascular system. Big vessels are destroyed. And so it becomes a huge, huge project that goes beyond any one institution, and that's why it really is best to have a consortium. Uh, the other reason it's best to have a consortium is just because we're talking about different tissues and different organs doesn't mean that lessons learned in one area can't be uh, transpositioned to another area because that happens all the time in our consortium. Why? Because we are giving uh, uh, what are called webinars to each other every single week. If we're not doing it at a full uh, consortium level, we're doing it at a more restructured, uh, restricted level like the skin or uh, the blood vessels or yeah. limbs. Right. And so every week, uh, one way or another, we are, we of the consortium, we investigators of the consortia, of the consortium are talking to each other. And so, of course, if we hear something from one group that we didn't know being from another group, uh, we immediately try to think if it can be applied. Uh, and, uh, and this is called cross-fertilization which is uh, one of the reasons why scientists have meetings every year <laughs> that they go to so they can talk mm -hmm. to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, but we get to talk to each other every week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That is great. So um, during your talk today, you covered some of your work um, on your uh, P12 peptide, illustrating some of its preclinical data, which shows its healing properties and ability to reduce scarring. We know that this work is currently being funded by AFIRM, and during your talk today, you covered some of um, 
some of the preclinical work that you've completed in, in this process, you started a new company called Neomatrix Therapeutics. Um, you uh, identified some patents uh, as well. We were wondering if you could cover what was this process like moving from academic research into preparing for an IND and, and eventual clinical trials. And I, I remember distinctly you said multiply everything by three or, or multiply <laughs> by two, but then you said actually by three. By three. Right. Well, actually, if you want to talk about knowledge needed to make the transition, you could probably multiply it by about 100 <laughs> because it's been an amazing trip. Uh, uh, scientists, even though they go to meetings and talk to each other every year, you know, basically whether they have a big lab or a little lab, they come back to their lab, and so they have a little community they work in, and that little community has skill sets that are defined by that community. So trying to go from a laboratory finding that comes out of a little scientific community to a product for patients is mind-expanding because now you have to rely actually on other scientific fields that are not your ballywick. So for instance, I found a little peptide from a big protein uh, that had biologic activity. Well, to get that on the market, it wasn't enough to simply find it had biologic activity. Uh, and I found biologic activity both in tissue culture and in animals. That's still not enough. To get it translational, you have to know a lot of chemistry. Why? Because you're trying to make a drug out of a peptide. And so to make a drug out of anything, you have to know a lot about chemistry because you have to manufacture that drug. Mm -hmm. And to manufacture the drug, that takes a lot of chemistry and a lot of controls. Uh, so it takes actually different kinds of chemistry. It can take biochemistry if it's a peptide. It can take medicinal chemistry if it's a small molecule. It can take uh, analytic chemistry if you want to follow purity or find out if you have impurity what the impurities are. Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden there are multiple skill sets uh, that you've never even thought about addressing in your entire life and if you're going to successfully take a laboratory finding uh, to a drug that goes into people you must be aware doesn't mean that you have to know everything there is to know about these other fields, but you at least have to be aware that all these other fields become involved. And so it is really mind expanding uh, beyond uh, most people's comprehension. It doesn't mean you can't comprehend it as you hit another field along the way, but it just sort of, as I look back on it, seems uh, unbelievable mm -hmm. that I have, <laughs> I have actually uh, almost done what we set out to do, which is to file something called an investigational uh, new drug with the uh, uh, document, and a document 
it's more like an encyclopedia <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, with the FDA. Uh, I, I, I just never conceived that I would uh, get there with all this information that has to be in this encyclopedia, but we're about <laughs> a month uh, away from uh, filing our encyclopedia. That's yeah. really exciting. Yeah, that is very exciting. So briefly, what are some of the exciting and unique properties of this peptide that make it a good candidate to treat burns? Uh, interesting and critically important question. So. Uh, everybody's probably heard of growth factors. In fact, lots of people probably even use growth factors because they're available now clinically to help heal chronic wounds. Um, so our little peptide, and it's much smaller than a growth factor. So a, let's just talk in pounds. It's not pounds. Uh, it's molecular weight. But So it's the difference between a 30 thousand pound gorilla and a 1,000 pound chimpanzee mm -hmm. is the difference in size between my peptide and the growth factor. So it turns out it's much cheaper and easier to make. It's much easier to quality control than a growth factor. And what's really cool about our peptide is I didn't ask it to do this, but it works with growth factors. And it works by with growth factors by making them more powerful in healing wounds. And, and in particular, in healing burn wounds, which uh, it was amazing to find out. And so it actually does this, which is very interesting, by making growth factors. Growth factors can do a variety of things, uh, not just heal wounds. And, but, but my peptide makes the growth factor concentrate, focus mm -hmm. on healing wounds. Uh, and it does that in ways that are difficult to explain unless you know a lot about molecular biology. But it basically manipulates the molecular biologic signals that come from the growth factor to be more focused on survival and healing. So your talk today covered um, that peptide and how it can play a role in facilitating the regenerative process with an injury. Um, so are you investigating any other mechanisms such as cell therapy or small molecule um, that might work together with that peptide? Well, the pie in the sky is to move to small molecules. And so most drugs on the market are small molecules until recently, if anybody's heard about biologics, those are usually not even peptides. They're the big gorilla-size uh, proteins. That's what small molecules are. Mm -hmm. um, sm uh, small molecules, unlike proteins, uh, are, are considered organic compounds. Uh, they're made in an organic chemistry lab. They're not usually isolated, it's actually would it be unusual to isolate them from nature, mm -hmm. whereas these peptides and proteins actually come from nature. Um, so if, if I wanted to take my peptide to one of these ring structure, more drug-like small molecules, I have to actually have a molecular model of the growth factor, which is available, 
but I need to have a molecular model of how the growth factor, which is this humongous model, it's not as it, it, it's not as complex as a whole gorilla, <laughs> but it's very complex as this big uh, molecule. I, I have to understand, I have to be able to understand exactly how my little tiny peptide interacts with that big molecule. And that's called molecular modeling. So it's kind of like Tinker Toys. If anybody did erector sets or Tinker Toys, it's like taking a big, gigantic erector set or Tinker Toy model and trying to determine how a, a little tiny model mm -hmm. fits into it. Mm -hmm. So you have these two models, one big, one little, and you want to know how they fit together. And so that's a molecular model. And if you get a molecular model, which we have, then you have to be able to manipulate that molecular model, uh, which we're trying to get funding for, mm -hmm. to really understand not just how it binds to the little to the big, not just how they bind together, but how they actually interact dynamically together. Mm -hmm. And we've been trying to get funding for that for probably two or three years now and have not yet succeeded, but I never give up. <laughs> and if you do science, you learn that very often. True. You just can never give up. And so we're still very hopeful. Uh, in fact, more hopeful now than three years ago of actually getting funding to do this. So out of it would come a little drug yep. instead of a peptide. And the advantage of that is whereas the peptide is, is, is susceptible to all kinds of ways the body can break it down, because that's what the body is used to doing, is breaking down proteins and peptides. That goes on every day of your life. Things are getting broken down and remade. So the body is built to do that. The body's not built to break down these small molecules I'm talking about. So it becomes a much more stable uh, product. And more stable means you might be able to take a pill as opposed to have it injected, which is kind of better, mm -hmm. most people yeah. would think. Less invasive. And so that's still our goal, is to move to a small molecule. Um, and just sort of to wrap up, we were talking, and I think one of the more memorable parts of your talk was how you um, affectionately called phase one and two of clinical trials as entering the valley of death. Yes. Um, so looking towards the future, <laughs> how long and how many millions of dollars do you think it will take to finally get your peptide into that commercial product? Well, first of all, to give credit to two arms of the government who's actually funded this whole project up to now, uh, the combination of the NIH and the DOD has spent $12 million to date on this project. And we're not into patients. We're just ready to file a investigational new drug encyclopedia to get it into patients. So the valley of death is getting it into patients after that's filed. Actually, if the FDA approves it, you've got to have money to do the trials. And so the first trial, which is based on safety, just taking normal volunteers and infusing the peptide to make sure it doesn't hurt them. Safety comes first with the FDA. So that's going to cost, we estimate, about $3 million. 
okay? And that's going to be burnt up in about three months, in about six months. So, I mean, in terms of the burn rate, it doesn't, I mean, without the burn rate, it doesn't sound like, you know, much compared to the 12 million, but the 12 million was given to us over two decades. Mm -hmm. The 3 million will be burned in six months. And then the second clinical trial, which is a very small uh, efficacy trial, which means, does it work? in burn patients, and also safety, does it hurt burn patients, not normal volunteers, uh, will be about the same size of trial, but will about double in cost. And that will probably burn up the $6 million in about a year. So it'll take a little longer, burn rate about the same, but we'll take about the, yeah, same amount of money. And then if we get through that, so we have safety. Getting through that actually with positive data, meaning that safety is okay, it doesn't hurt people, mm-hmm. and it actually works, mm-hmm. guess what? Big Pharma is probably gonna be interested because mm-hmm. the only way we're gonna make phase three clinical trials, now we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, maybe even a hundred million dollars. And the only folks that can afford that is Big Pharma. So the valley of death is getting to the point that big pharma is confident enough that this drug is going to work, not hurt people, that they take over right. and get it to patients. Right. Yeah. So we still need big pharma. Right. Well, thank you so much yeah. for coming in today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank <laughs> you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.